Well, good morning. Um, I didn't introduce myself at the beginning, but I sure shared a lot. Um, my name is William. I'm one of the elders here at the Mountain Church, and I have the privilege to uh, uh, preach God's Word this morning out of Judges 9. Now, as Kelly said, Judges 9 is a long one, right? 57 verses, correct? 57 verses. So, to kind of backtrack, what we've been doing is we've been going through the book of Judges, one chapter at a time, looking at the different stories and relating them back to three questions. Um, those three questions being how uh, or what do we learn about God's character and his relationship with his people? That's that first question we look to answer. The second question being, uh, how does this story fit into the larger picture, the larger meta-narrative of Bible and the rest of, uh, the rest of Scripture? And then looking for an admonition or an exhortation from the passage. So essentially, what can we do or what should we take from this passage to uh, help shape our lives going forward as uh, believers of Jesus and the gospel? So up to this point, Judges has kind of had a like um, thing going where there's like a time of rest and then a time of unrest and then followed by a judge that saves, which then enters into a time of rest and then um, usually followed by more unrest, right? And we've been kind of going over that. And it's kind of been a, um, as we've seen, kind of this downward spiral, right? Like things kind of get, they started pretty, like they were good and then they kind of got worse. And then we see the spiral kind of gets tighter because there's less and less time in those periods of goodness. Now, the way I like to think about this is that spiral kind of stopped here and they got off and then they just jumped off a ledge, Okay, that's what happens in chapter 9. The spiral stops. It's not a slow build anymore. It's just, hey, this is like, this went downhill quickly. Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to dive into chapter 9. So if you guys could all turn to Judges chapter 9. If you guys aren't there yet, I'll give you a few seconds. Judges chapter 9. So hopefully if you have been listening online or here on Sunday mornings, you will know that we've just gotten done with the story of Gideon, right? So we learned about Gideon, and then at the end of the story of Gideon, Gideon dies, and he's had, uh, he was kind of like acting like a king, but even though he said he wasn't going to be king, he took uh, silver from, or the, the earrings from different people, and so he was kind of acting like a king, but he said he didn't want to be king. So there was kind of that, that contradiction. Then he dies, and that's where we pick up, okay? And it doesn't really tell us how much time happens in between Gideon's story and the story of Abimelech, okay? It doesn't really tell us how much time, and usually if it doesn't tell you how much time, it kind of just infers that it's just a continuation of the story, that it's just going to keep going. So we have to assume this is pretty close to when Gideon passed away, right? So let's go ahead and dive in. Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and the whole clan of his mother's family, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you? that all 70 of the sons of Jerubbabel rule over you, or that one rule over you. Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. Now, I think it's important to point out here how we talked about how Gideon said he didn't want to be king, right? Well, what is Abimelech inferring here? That the 70 sons are going to rule over them, right? He's already saying that. So what can we assume then that the Israelite people are thinking? They are honestly, even though Gideon has said, I don't want to be king, he was acting like a king. So then we can see that Abimelech is already talking to the people, hey, just so you know, in lineage, these 70 people are going to be king over you. So is it better that these 70 people rule over you or just one person? 
So he's making a play on emotion. What's, what's better, right? And, and he was kind of getting at this idea that 70 people would be pulling in 70 different directions. There'd be a lot of different things that you had to like try and follow along with. You'd be probably paying taxes to a lot of different people. So he's trying to point out that this is not necessarily a good way. So I think it's just one. And then he makes a really interesting play. His last play that he wants to kind of grasp power is he says, what? I'm your family. I'm your family. So in his mind, family is more important than anything else, right? God's providence, God's sovereignty, any of that kind of stuff. Make me king because for nothing else, I am your family. Now remember, um, Abimelech, Abimelech, what he is, is he's the son of uh, Gideon's concubine. So he wasn't one of, uh, so he wasn't the son of one of Gideon's wives, right? Not even like a secondary wife or a tertiary wife. Like he was, he was one of the sons of the concubine. So that's why it says he went to his mother's family, right? Not to Gideon's family. He went to his mother's family to start pulling this out. So you can kind of see where this like separation is already being pulled at, right? So, all right. Second piece I want to point out is that they are in Shechem. Shechem is a very important place. If you know or if you've read any of the Old Testament, you will see that Shechem is important. Now, where where is it important? Well, first thing we want to talk about is in Deuteronomy 27. Or actually, I'm going to go even further back. Let's go back to Genesis 34. In Genesis 34, Jacob had had entered into an agreement with its inhabitants because there's a pretty gruesome story that I'm not going to recap that happens um, in Genesis 34 where they enter into an agreement. Jacob's sons do some pretty terrible things because some terrible things had happened to them, and it was kind of just this bitter war. So they were supposed to be some sort of a covenant or an agreement with them um, made so that uh, they would be essentially brought into the inheritance of the Israelite people. Okay, So we understand it was set up there. Then we hear about it again in Deuteronomy 27, when it says we hear about the two mounts that are on each side of the city. So there's the mount, which they, uh, Gerzim, which is like the blessings mount. There was like these blessings that were read. To the, to the people of Israel. And then on the other side, there was Mount Ebal, which was where the curses were read, right? So you have these the two factions of the Israelites standing uh, opposite each other. And this, these two mounts overlooked the city and they were like a natural amphitheater. And they just like started talking, like they, they showed like uh, the Mosaic law, what the laws were and then what would happen, right? That there would be blessings if you followed and curses if you didn't, right? So, and this happened over the city of Shechem. So this city was pretty... Uh, importance. The last uh, two things that we see is Joshua uses the city of Shechem as well. He makes, he renews the uh, Mosaic covenant with them in uh, Joshua 8. And then hopefully you guys, uh, some of you remember back to when we covered uh, Judges 1. And when we covered Judges 1, we left off with Joshua giving the people of Israel a charge, right? He really like, he says, you guys have the land now. Here's your inheritance. It is your turn now. You have to decide, are you going to follow the Lord or are you not, right? And he puts, and the people of Israel say, we are going to follow the Lord. And then he says, great, and like gives them essentially that reminder of the covenant that there will be uh, what it will look like to follow God. And if not, that there will be consequences for that. And he lays that out over Shechem. Right? So we're in that city. So you can see there's a lot of history here. And so to start this rebellion, essentially, um, in the city of Shechem seems very fitting, right? That, it's, that this would be a key place where it would start. 
All right. So let's keep going. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on behalf of the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he is our brother. So they bought into the family tie, right? So now they're going to follow him. So they decide that this is good. Now they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal-Barith, and with, uh, er, and which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. Now, who were these worthless and reckless fellows? They would have essentially been the lowest of society. Um, one commentary said, essentially, they would have been like the second sons of second wives. So like they had like no inheritance. They weren't really looked upon as any, like they, they had no favor on them and stuff like that. So it would have been people like this. They would have been misfits. They would have been outlaws, any of those kind of people. This is who Abimelech hires to like, help start his authority in Shechem and essentially in Israel. So it's just interesting to see who he chooses after uh, they do this. So next piece, he went to his father's house uh, at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubbabel, uh, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbabel, was left um, for he hid himself. So I think it's important for us to understand this was like a ritual killing, right? Because this wasn't like a battle. He didn't go in and fight a battle and try and like usurp authority that way. This was, would have been a ritual killing. The idea of on one stone meant that it was pretty brutal. And essentially he went to their house, pulled them out of their house. Because when it says he went to Ophrah, that was a Gideon's like um, estate, if you want to call it that way, right? He would, there would have been multiple houses, his farm, all that kind of stuff. So he went there. There was a stone there. Now, nobody really knows fully what this stone was, if it was an altar, if it was um, just like something like kind of like an Ebenezer, something set up to be like a reminder of who God was. They don't really know. They just show that it was on one stone, which means that one son after the next was marched out there and killed. So we understand, hopefully we understand like the, the uh, gruesomeness of what Abimelech does, Right? He goes there, gets one brother at a time, and there is a ritual, essentially like a ritual killing of each of these sons, except for the youngest, Jotham. Now, I think it's interesting to point out, and I want to point this out, that yes, uh, last week, Daniel talked about Abimelech. And remember, Abimelech's name was significant because Abimelech's name meant, does anybody remember what his name meant? What is it, Peter? Close, yeah, uh, yeah, essentially, yes. So my father is king. That's, the, that's his translation of his name. Okay. Now the one son who was spared was Jotham. And his name means Yahweh, the Lord, is perfect. Okay, that's the one son who was spared. Yahweh is perfect. Okay, so he is spared. So that's an important piece for us to understand. So, and when all the leaders, so we're in verse 6 now, and all the leaders of Shechem came together, at uh, Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar of Shechem. So he convinced them to make him king, right? All he had to do was eliminate all the other people in his way. He eliminates them. What happens? They get to uh, anoint him king. Now understand, um, as we'll find out later, this is king of Israel, not just of the little town of Shechem. It says that he ruled over Israel, okay, as we get to a later point. So they make him king, and then we get to my favorite part of Judges. This is my absolute favorite part of Judges. I was so excited, you guys, that I found out that I get to preach this. I'm so pumped because I think Jotham 
gives an epic speech here that I'm not going to do justice. So hopefully you guys can feel the fiery passion that Jotham had um, when he gave his speech. So it says, when it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount uh, Gerizim and cried aloud. Now I want you guys to remember that that was the Mount of Blessings. Okay. So remember when I told you guys earlier that there was two mounts surrounding the city? One was known as the Mount of Blessings and the other was known as the the Mount of Curses, right? Because that's how they like shouted them to each other so that all of Israel knew what would happen if they didn't follow God and if they did follow God kind of deal. So he stands up on the Mount of Blessings. And he said to them, listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. Then he tells a a fable here. So the trees once went out to anoint a king over them. They said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go, go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the fig tree, you come reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the vine, you come reign over us. But the vine said to them, shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, you come and reign over us. The bramble said to the trees, if it is in good faith, you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. So this fable, what is he trying to get across in here? Trees, bushes, vines, what, like, what's he getting at here, right? Because Abimelech was just made king, how does this tie in? Well, there's some important things to pull from here. What we need to know first is that the people of Shechem are the trees, okay? They're the trees. They're the trees in this fable. And what we have here is we have the trees going to three different things, right? We have them going to first the olives, right? The olive tree, which, uh, or, so we have the olive tree, then we have the fig tree, and then we have the vine, right? All three of these things were important resources in that area. So if for Israel, they would have been really important things. Olive oil, what was olive oil used for? It was used for a ton of things, right? Anointing, first of all, but then second of all, just for cooking. It was used in medication. Um, it was used as a lubricant. I mean, there was so many things that olive oil was used for at the time. So it was a very important resource for them, right? And he's saying that the trees went to that resource and said, be king over us, and that resource turned them down. Now, some people equate these three resources to three different people and judges, uh, Gideon, Deborah, and um, Othniel. But I'm not necessarily convinced that that's what it is. But essentially what this passage is trying to get across is that the people of Israel had kind of been looking for a king and kind of telling people to go through. And we have these like what we hope to see is that there's been a lot of people who may have been kind of more worthy to be king that all stepped back and said, no, right? I want to be king. It's not good for us. It's probably not the best thing for us. God should be leading us. We should step back. And that's what Jotham is trying to get at here. And then the last one that he gets to is Bramble. Bramble. Now, what's interesting here is it's really... Uh, 
uh, like a really interesting picture to be painted here because hopefully you guys know bramble is just kind of like stuff that's maybe like about this tall, right? It's In this case, it would be like a really dry like bush, a weed. Um, I kind of think of like tumbleweed in the old Western movies, right? That just kind of like blows around. It's really just not a good thing. It was useless. It provided nothing. What's interesting here is that the bramble, what does the bramble say here? It says, if in good faith you are anointing me, then come and take refuge in my shade. A tree is not going to get shade from bramble. It's just not going to happen, right? And what's interesting is the language that he chooses to use as well when he says, let the fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. If there was one thing bramble was known for, it was for starting fires. That's how people knew it, right? If you had bramble around your crops, you kind of like cleared them out because it would start a fire if it got too close to you or to your crops and you didn't want them destroyed. So you made sure that was gone. So he's pointing out in this fable that they decided to go to the bramble and ask that to rule over them and provide shade. So we can honestly see right here that Jotham is literally telling them bad choice, right? You didn't do what was good. And even though he said, if you acted in good faith, that was kind of just like being, like was kind of a facetious comment because he knows that that's not right, right? They didn't do what they were supposed to do. So um, the next piece, uh, verse 16. Now, therefore, you acted, or if you acted in good faith, and with integrity, when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jerubbabel and his house, and have done to or and done to him as he deserved, for my father fought for you and risked his life and devoured, or excuse me, and delivered you from the hand of Midian. And you have risen up against my father's house this day, and have killed his son seventy men on one stone, and have made Abimelech the son of his female servant king over the leaders of Shechem, because of your or because he is your relative, if you then have acted in good faith and integrity with Jerubbabel and his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. So what is he really saying here, right? Because he's asking them, right? He's, he's kind of like laying out, like, if you guys acted in good faith, then great. Like, it's going. When I read this, this kind of reminded me of one of those parental speeches. I don't know if you guys ever got them when you were sitting down to do your homework and you did it, and you just did it quick, right? And you're like, I'm done. And so you went to show your parents. You're like, I'm done with my homework. And what, like, I don't know if you guys ever got this one. I didn't get it often, but I got it a couple times. I mean, if you're happy with that, if you're okay with that, if that's how you want your name to be known, I mean, if that's the quality of work you want your teacher to see, then okay, great. And you automatically know what are they trying to tell you. It's not good enough. You need to do better on this. You're capable of better. You should view yourselves as higher, right? So what is Jotham doing here? He's trying to get them to see kind of what he said in the, back, or in the front end of his speech, you know, that he wants, so that hopefully that they would hear him so that God would be able to hear them, right? So that he wants them to be able to, to maybe repent for what they have done and like giving them a chance to get back out of what they had already done. And he says this to them, right? And... Um, but then we go on to the, uh, the next verse. He says, But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Bethmilo, and let fire come out of the leaders of Shechem and Bethmilo and devour Abimelech. So what is that verse really saying? He's hoping that they both get what they deserve, right? They would destroy each other. That's what he's saying, right? Fire is going to come out of the bramble that you guys 
God and hopefully, and he's saying, and what's going to happen is that fire is going to consume you guys, and your fire is going to in turn consume Abimelech, who started the fire, really, right? So he says, and Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beer and lived there because Abimelech, his brother. So then Jotham is now gone, right? Jotham, he's out of the picture. All right. So is everybody with me so far? We're less than halfway in. <laughs> okay. So now I get to kind of paraphrase this next few parts. So. Uh, hopefully we will be um, uh, a little bit more uh, quick with this. So uh, last thing, I, actually, I want to point out with verse 20 and 21. Verse 20 and 21 are a prophecy. So um, we will see how this comes true later. But that, I would just, it's important that we understand that that was a prophecy that was being told by Jotham. So then we have the next few verses. Um, and God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. So what do we see right away? God intervenes, right? This is the first time we really hear about God in chapter 9, right? God intervenes, and what does it say he does? Sends an evil spirit. He is commanding uh, something to cause division, which is exactly what um, Jotham had said from his uh, uh, essentially his speech of curses from the Blessing Mount, right? So it's kind of going backwards. So he says, The violence done to the 70 of Jerubbabel might come, and their blood uh, be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened the hands to kill his brothers. So the leaders of Shechem put, a, or put men in ambush against the mount, mountaintops, and they robbed all who passed along that way and was told to Abimelech. So essentially what happens is you already have this infighting people from, um, different, or from different areas are now robbing stuff that should be going to Abimelech. He's king, right? He deserves all these resources. So now what I'm going to kind of paraphrase is, I think, verses uh, 26 through 33. So I'm just going to paraphrase these. So hopefully you'll go home and read them. Um, essentially what happens is you get a story of division being stirred up. You have somebody who is loyal to Abimelech living in uh, Shechem. You have um, this guy that's in Shechem. His name is Geul. <clears throat> Excuse me, Geul. His name means dung beetle. Um, I don't know why that's important, but I found that kind of funny, right? So you get this guy named dung beetle that is in Shechem, and he starts talking bad about Abimelech, right? Okay, I don't, you know, like, oh, man, I... He's a terrible ruler. I could do better than him kind of stuff, right? And this guy that's loyal to Abimelech starts like kind of fueling the fire like, yeah, what else do you think about him, right? And gets him to say all this crazy stuff. And then what does the guy who's loyal to Abimelech do? Sends a message to Abimelech and is like, hey, man, this guy's like causing stuff over here. You should come down and do something, right? So what does Abimelech do? Comes down to fight him, right? And like you end up seeing that there's this kind of like crazy thing that happens. There's like a battle that goes on. Um, and Abimelech uh, comes in and essentially just destroys Shechem, right? And when I say destroys Shechem, I mean he kills everybody. Um, it says he kills the leaders of Shechem. He kills uh, essentially everyone in the town. And then not only does he kill them, he sows the ground with salt. What does it mean to sow the ground with salt? It means that like he wants this to be like a barren nothing, you put salt on anything, if you ever put salt on a slug or on a plant, what happens to it? Dies, right? He covers the ground with salt so that the city of Shechem is what? Just wiped out. I don't want them anymore. They were talking bad about me. I don't like it. 
I, you know, and he goes on, and so that's what he does. Now, in the process of wiping them out, there's a couple things that happen. First, he kind of wipes out this first wave of people that live in kind of the surrounding town, the areas in there. But then he goes to the uh, tower where all of the, um, I don't know what you want to call them, like the leaders of Shechem would have been. And there's a couple interesting things that uh, I, I think are important here. Um, this is... Uh, one of the things that we talked about is Abimelech didn't like his father's family, right? That's why he went to his mother's family to ask to lead. <clears throat> Abimelech essentially did not like his dad, did not like his dad's family, yet essentially ruled and looked just like his father did. Because what do we remember in the passage about Gideon? What did Gideon do? Well, Gideon went and asked for some help from a town, and that town told him no, and what did he tell him he was going to come back and do? Destroy him. I'm going to come back and wipe you guys out. Then went to the next town and said the same thing, Right? And what did he do? He came back and lived it out. So Abimelech, who hates his dad, hates everything about his dad, actually lives just like his dad, right? He's living just like him. And what's crazy is there's this one scene, if this is like a movie, I love thinking about this, there's this one scene that you see where what happens is Abimelech says something. Now, if we go back to chapter 7, verse 17, I'm going to go back there real quick so I can just read it to you guys. So uh, verse 17, so Gideon is getting ready for his battle, right? And he divided the men, uh, I'm going to start with 16. He divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them with empty jars, torches inside the jar. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise, right? That's what, that's what Gideon says, right? Now we're going to flip over here. And uh, I think it's in verse 48. And Abimelech went to Mount Zalman. And he had all the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and he cut down the bundle of brushwood and took it up and laid it on his shoulder. And he said to the men who were with him, what you have seen me do, hurry and do as I have done. He leads exactly like his dad did, right? He's exactly like him. I think it's important for us to understand that Abimelech's not that far off. He saw how his father led and he is leading the same way, even though he didn't like it really important. I mean, that's a really key thing here. He saw what was bad. He didn't like it. And yet he's still leading that exact same way. And then it's even more so fitting that what ends up happening is after he destroys Shechem, it's crazy what happens. This verse 50, I want you guys to see verse 50. Then Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. When you guys read that, I, maybe you guys have the same opinion I do. What is Thebes? Who are they? Like, why? Because has it ever talked about them in here? No. So what, what is going on here? Well, just like what we said, Abimelech is just like his dad. What happened? He became enraged, and now what's he doing? He's going for it. It doesn't matter who's in his way now. He saw the next, like, the next town, and he's like, I'm going there. Now, we understand, hopefully, as we read through this story, this is all part of God's providence and divine sovereignty. So he goes there. He does the same thing. He starts wiping it out. He gets to the tower. Now, here's where the story gets awesome. He gets to the tower. He gets up to the tower, and before he can light it on fire, what happens? A lady gets up there, and she chucks a millstone off the top, and what does it do? Hits him right in the head, knocks him down. And his skull's like cracked. Everything's looking bad for him. And what does he say? 
oh man, I'm dying. Calls his sword bearer over. Please run a sword through me so that I don't have the embarrassment of dying by a woman. That's all he's worried about. And then we see what happens here is when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he had committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbaal. So Jotham, er, Abimelech wipes out the people of Shechem. Then he goes to the next town for some odd reason. And what happens to him? He's wiped out. Just a couple key things before we jump into the, the uh, questions. I just like thinking about um, what really happened here at the end of the story. Um, Daniel has talked a little bit about how a lot of the stories in Judges are cyclical. means they start at the same place they end. Where did this story start? Abimelech taking power, killing every one of Gideon's sons on what? One stone. And how... Is Abimelech killed? One stone. It's very interesting. This is the second time also, though, where God humiliates the person that is going after him. Remember in our story of um, the tent peg and the stake, right? A woman using a household object that she would have been comfortable with, driving that tent peg through his head and killing him. Humiliation. This is the same thing. I was reading in this culture, for a man to even touch a millstone would have been the ultimate disgrace. For him to even touch it, it was a household appliance for slaves or for women of lesser stature. That's what it was. So for him to even touch it would have been disgraceful. For him to be killed by it was even more impactful. So... I had some sort of obligatory joke there about um, women and their household appliances that maybe I'll stay away from. I don't know. Get a little, <laughs> be careful of a woman in a blender. I mean, it's just, it is crazy though to think that how God not only destroyed and followed through on what he said, but he humiliated the people who came against him and what his divine sovereignty was. So I think that's really important for us to see. Okay, did we all feel like we have a good understanding of this story now? Are we all there? Yeah? Good. Okay. All right. <laughs> I'm starting to see, Daniel, why that should have been the first uh, 21 verses, not the whole thing. Um, let's dive into our three questions. So question one. Question one. What does this story state about the character of God and his relationship with his people? Well, I think the biggest one that, that is, uh, I'm drawn to here is one that Tim Keller talks about in his book, uh, Judges for You. He says that one of the biggest themes in this story is justice. Justice. Everybody wants it, everybody likes it, but everybody's not always on board with the way God acts it out. Right? Our car window's broken, what do we want? Justice. Who did this? They must pay for it. Right? Somebody hurts your feelings. Well, I want their feelings hurt. I want them to feel my pain. I want justice, right? We all like it, but I think the bigger thing here is to understand 
that there's a couple key parts to God's justice. The first is God's justice is active even when not seen. There's something working. Okay, one of the biggest pieces that we had here in verse uh, 22 is it says Abimelech ruled over Israel for three years. So for three years, something was brewing, right? And we were looking for justice. What happened, man? This guy killed 70 people. Where's the justice? Three years, he gets to live as king. God was moving. God was shaping something to happen. It's active even when it's not seen. His justice is in his perfect time and for his glory. Not for yours, not for mine, for his glory. So how he chooses to play it out is for him to decide, right? And lastly, one of the interesting things here is he uses human sin to enact his justice. So in this case, it's really interesting that he used rebellion against those who rebel. Right? Abimelech rebelled. And what was Abimelech's downfall? Rebellion. Right? Got him fired up. Went to Shechem, destroyed it. And then he went to the next thing and was killed for it. So just remembering that justice is a good thing. It's what God intended. I think this story just points out to us that his plan is perfect, his justice is perfect, and it will be enacted. And it's not our job to decide when that happens. So I think we learned that about God in this story. I don't want to focus too much on that one because I want to go to question two. Let's go to question two. So how does this story play into God's bigger story or the meta-narrative of the Bible? So I think that this story, again, shows us why King Jesus is the only true king worth following. Now, I think Abimelech gets it right in one piece. There's one piece that Abimelech gets right. He says, isn't it better for one to rule over you? Yeah. All right, Abimelech. You're right, dude. That's good. But it's not him. Right? He got part of the message right. And we are better having King Jesus rule over us. But I think what's interesting is that Jesus preached a different message. What was Abimelech's message? Make me king because I'm what? I'm your blood. I'm your flesh. I'm your bone, right? What did Jesus come and say? I'm creating a new family, right? You can be part of my family. It doesn't matter that like our second cousins are related. None of that matters, right? I have a new kingdom at hand. I think that this also points us to a need for God's grace. When left to our own will, we exact revenge. We want our reputation saved at devastating costs. We will become driven by our own desires, which seek to serve only ourselves. And if we follow the leaders who look like that, we too will become like that. Abimelech saw his dad do it. He saw his dad lead terribly. He did it, and the people that he led followed him down that path. We need to look to a different king. This is how this story points us to the bigger picture of Jesus. We need to have a king that leads us in a way that is honoring of God that uplifts his glory and makes him treasured above all things. 
This is kind of one of those hard stories in the scriptures where there's a really dark edge to this. There's not a lot of brightness that comes out of that. And I think that this is where we can look, is that we need to have a Savior (laughs) ruling over us, calling us to Him, calling us to live lives that are set apart. Not lives that are set on our own desires. We see that God, in contrast, has been gracious. We see that where the difference is when God leads is that not only is this what we talked about with his judgment, but his grace is also active when not seen. Right? Do we ask the right questions? I love in um, the explicit gospel, he asks such great questions, right? Why is a bridge allowed to collapse in a storm? How about we ask, how come every other bridge is allowed to stand? Right? God is gracious even when we don't see it. It is all in his, his grace is perfect. And it is for his glory and not our glory. And what's interesting is his grace works in spite of human sin. And it is always there for the taking. So then what I want to kind of focus the most on today is question three. I believe that this story is meant to give us a really big um, warning. There's a big warning here. And I can't escape it. You guys, I'm going to tell you guys right now, I battled with this for two weeks. I battled with this for two weeks because I'm scared to death to talk of it. I really am. It makes me uncomfortable, and I don't like it. I have something that's just kind of stirring in the pit of my stomach still because I, it just it gets to me. And I think what this story really points at, and I'm going to kind of dive into this, and I hope you guys can hear me when I say this, is that hell is real. Hell is real. That's what I believe this story is pointing us to understand. There is a healthy fear that we can have of hell. And I believe God is showing us that. And I'm going to show you guys how he's pointing this out. The first thing we want to understand is that God's word is true and will come true. So this story shows us of the justice of God. His prophecy spoken by Jotham came true. And his, I believe his words are extremely clear. Joseph or Jotham really gave a chance for the people of Shechem to see their transgressions. You know what is right and wrong in the sight of the Lord. He literally tells them, and he points it out to them, what you guys are doing is wrong. It's wrong. And you guys know it. And I'm going to say it to you so that you hear it. And his goal is, and he says that he wants them to be able to like, like what he was kind of getting out there is he's offering them a chance to hear their transgressions and hopefully repent of those. But he gives them a clear warning. He, with his closing, says that with choosing to do what is wrong, fire will consume you. It will consume you. 
And we see this played out. They chose to do what was wrong, and what happened? They were all destroyed because of it. They did not look at their transgressions and repent from them. They looked at their transgressions and said, no big deal, and kept going. And I think it's important to remember that these were Israelites, God's chosen people, that chose to live this way, and because of it, they were destroyed. I believe that this is just a micro example of God's final judgment, and it should be hard to hear and uncomfortable to deal with. It should be. The thought of people being condemned for their sin, sent to hell to live lives separate from God, should make us uncomfortable. We should not like that. I don't like it. But what we do out of that is where the difference, I believe, is between believers and non-believers. I want us to go ahead. If you have your Bible, can you guys turn to Matthew chapter 13? We're going to look at two different things in Matthew chapter 13. I think it's good to always back up statements that we make. I don't want to just take an Old Testament passage and say because he said something about fire that hell's real and that's it. There's more. There's more. Matthew 13. Let's look at verse uh, 41. So the parable of the weeds are explained. Jesus is explaining this parable. If you need to read it, you can read it at another time. I just want to point this out. For 41, the son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus is clear. Hell is real. Just like Jotham said on that mountain, we have an obligation to hear what is right and wrong and live under grace that God has given us and repent in those sins. Not a few verses later, staying in Matthew 13, verses 47 through 50. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. I love that, gathered fish of every kind, right? This is not just talking about Israel. This is talking about everybody, right? We're pulling everybody in. But then he says, when it was full, the men drew it ashore, sat down, and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of age, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Twice, twice in what? Eight verses? Jesus gives a warning. Hell is real. It should scare us. There is a healthy fear to have. Now, I hope you guys can hear me when I say I'm not up here talking to one single one of you. I don't know where you are. I don't. And that's not my job to play. What I have a responsibility to do, though, is preach the text. And this is so, so clear to me. So what does this mean for us then? 
Hell is real. The idea of people being separated from God for eternity should scare us. Everything bad that we ever see is a micro example of what hell will be. Death, sickness, anger, pain. All of these things are just examples of what separation from Christ looks like. And God is so gracious that he gives people what they want. People who live lives apart from Jesus don't want him and he gives them what they want. An eternal life apart from him. That reality is sobering to me. Pastor Jesus gives us his warnings, just like the, jo- the story of Jotham in the fable told to Shechem. I'm really nervous to go here, but we're going to go here. Let's go to Revelation. We'll see if Daniel lets me preach again after this. The story of Revelation starts out with some warnings. I like it. Pastor Jesus. Pastor Jesus is speaking here. And Pastor Jesus tells his servant John to write some things down. And what does Pastor Jesus start the book of Revelation with? He starts it with this crazy imagery about seven lampstands representing seven different churches and all this kind of stuff. We can read it later. But I want to point out a few things here, that there are some churches here. So starting in church or in chapter 2, you see that most of you guys have Bibles that have headings, right? You see, to the church in Ephesus, to the church in Smyrna. Do you guys see all those? I'm going to give you a microcosm. I'm just going to give you an example of some of these ones that he says. To those who compromise, who eat food, sacrifice to idols, to practice sexual immorality, he tells them to repent. If not, I will come to you soon and wage war against them with the sword of my mouth. He's pretty clear, isn't he? There's right and wrong. To one of the other churches, he says, keep the message of grace, what you have heard alive, right? He's telling them because he says, keep what you have heard alive. And what he's talking about here is the grace of God. Keep that message alive. Remember it, keep it. And he uses the same word again, repent, turn away from what you are doing. If you do not, I will come like a thief and, or I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. These are all warnings just like Jotham gave in this story, right? He's telling them, here's what's right and wrong. You know it. And there is a warning, repent. And then there's the last one I kind of want to talk about, and let's go there. Revelation 3, 14 through 22. This one is the one that kind of scares me to death. This is the one I think that identifies the Church of America so well. He says to the church at Laodicea, and... So this is this is letter to the church of Laodicea. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the amen and the faithful and true witness, 
the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither hot, or excuse me, you're either cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counseled you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and shame of your nakedness may not be seen and, and uh, salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those who I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him, and he will eat with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, and I will, er, excuse me, and I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I think that this is very clear. Pastor Jesus gives us a clear statement, just like Jotham did. There is clearly a way to live for Christ. There is clearly a way that sets us apart. Now, the one thing that I kept taking from those things where Pastor Jesus went is he always used the word repent. So when he talks about repentance, what is he saying? He is saying, take a life and turn your life away from evil things. Not once, but continually. We never want to get to a place where we cheapen God's grace. We never want to get to a place where we think God's saving grace, once I have it, I am free to do as I please because God's saving grace is there for me. What does he say? He says to the church in Ephesus, don't forget your first love to love people. He says to uh, the church of Pergamum, don't compromise. You're compromising. Don't do it. And that last church, what did he say? Don't be lukewarm. Because I will spit you out. That's a clear, clear, clear warning to me. God's grace is free, but it is not cheap. It costs everything. Jesus' blood on the cross was everything. I don't think he's calling us to a life of lukewarmity. I don't know if that's a word. But he's not calling us for that. He's called us to be so much more. And are we living lives that are marked by that? What does that mean for us? It means that if Jesus is our king, we'll be marked by his characteristics, loving, gentle, gracious, generous. And I could go on with the list. So my question to you today is, something is ruling. What is it? Something is ruling. What is it? And I think you could look at your fruit, right? We think about like, what are you bearing from that? If you are not living a life 
or if you're not living out of the gospel, if you're not sharing the gospel, the question that you need to ask is what do you need to repent of that is getting in the way? Now, listen to me when I say this. I'm not telling you that your salvation is through works. I'm not telling you that if you're not sharing the gospel, you're failing. Because guess what? I, I'm, not, I'm not sharing it when, every time I could be. But I think there's something deeper here. I think that there's something deeper here where I think that the emphasis is on repentance. What are we repenting of that is getting in the way of our ultimate desire to see Jesus as king in our lives. Jesus called us to live a life that looks like him and told us it would cost everything. And then he paid the ultimate sacrifice, dying on the cross for every sin. Now, I think it's really easy for us to think every sin and just think about all the bad things that are happening in the world, but I want us to stop and just think for a second, and I'm reflective on myself, and I'm gonna admit some things. Every time that I ever looked at pornography... Every time that I ever decided to do things that were better for me, every time I yelled at Kelly for not having the house the way it should be, for every time that I told her in terrible moments that she was not parenting the way she should be, for every time that I was mean to people in school, for every time that I thought things should be terrible for other people because they were terrible for me, those were the nails that held Jesus on the cross. Not some obligatory sin that's out there, killing, murder, all these things, uh, drug use, all that kind of stuff that I didn't participate in. My sin specifically held him on that cross as he died and his blood was poured out. Every moment I should be on my knees repenting to God for the things that I do that bring disgrace to his name and thank him so mercilessly for the grace that he gave to me so freely when I did not deserve it. Because I don't. I still don't. Yet God gave me a gift. And out of that gift of grace, and seeing what it cost, and seeing how it paid for every failure that I ever had should make me want to outpour verbally, emotionally, everything that I have to God because without him, I am nothing but a sinful, wretched creature. And God called me as a saint my heart should want to share that with everyone. I don't want to hold that in. That is the good news of the gospel that he has asked us to share with the world. My friends, I don't live with that guilt of those sins. I live out of joy in the grace that Jesus has redeemed me from those sins. All of my sins came at a cost that I do not have to pay. Jesus is paying them. What a beautiful message we have to share with the world. Father, thank you so much for this day. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for your warnings.
Father, we pray that there is a balance of understanding that your justice and your judgment is coming. Father, and that weightiness of your justice and your judgment needing to have atonement for our sins, something to pay the cost for our sins, and you taking that from us, Father, should lead us to understand just how valuable your grace is. Just how worthy the blood of Christ was shed for each and every single sin that everyone has committed, Father. You wore that for us. Father, words cannot express the gratitude we have for that. Father, anything I say from this point forward will fail in comparison to what you deserve. Father, let us have hearts that understand your grace is good. Father, you are a good God. You are a loving God. And everything is done for your glory. So, Father, let us live out of that. Let us live lives that are dedicated to your cause. Father, we love you and we thank you. We pray this in your name. Amen.